Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host for At the Edge, an Afrofuturist salon. Tonight we have a very special guest, um, my uncle, the Reverend Dr. Gregory E. Thomas. Um, and he has pastored the historic Calvary Baptist Church of Haverhill, Massachusetts for 22 years. Since coming to the predominantly African-American 140-year-old church, he has grown the membership, acquired new properties, revamped Christian education, and initiated ministries of spirituality. Um, among other ministries, he um, has a scholarship program for high school graduates pursuing higher education, um, has a food ministry to combat hunger throughout the Merrimack Valley, um, started a nonprofit development corporation, dedicated to taking the mission of the church outside the school, and created the Reverend Dr. Gregory Thomas African-American Church Lecture Series. Um, Reverend Dr. Thomas is a native of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, he entered the preaching ministry in 1980 in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Um, Dr. Thomas completed his undergraduate study in history in 1970 from Baldwin-Wallace College in Berea, Ohio, where he was a star football player. I remember that. I was a great He received his... Oh, whoa, we won, but I remember that for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, he received his master's degree in theological studies in 1989 from Harvard, um, Harvard Divinity School at Harvard University. Um, he received his doctorate of ministry in 2001 from Boston University School of Theology, and I also remember that. I was there at the graduation ceremony. Um, he is a doctor candidate at Luther University in Frankfurt, Germany, where he is pursuing a PhD in practical theology. Dr. Thomas has taught at Luther University, Harvard Divinity School, Gordon Conwell Seminary, and Leslie College. He has written the, uh, for the American Baptist Quarterly, the National Baptist Voice, and has contributed several books. He is married to the former Janie R. McMillian and has two adult children, Bath Sergeant Eli uh, Labyrinthine. I keep forgetting, that's, it's, it's French. It's French. Um, and Jennifer Thomas. Dr. Thomas has served on many boards, including the Haverhill Housing Partnership the former Bradford College Habitat for Humanity in Greater Lawrence, United Baptist Convention of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire, and as advisor to the Center for Practical Theology, Boston University School of Theology. Quite a list here of accomplishments, and I haven't even mentioned um, the, the materials that I've um, found that you have 
uh, contributed. Good evening, Reverend Dr. Gregory Thomas, and for the purpose of this conversation, I'm going to refer to you as Uncle Gregory, as I know you. Well, good evening, sweetheart. Good evening. Uh, I'm uh, honored and happy to be with you on this forum, and um, I, I think it's great uh, that we can do this. I don't know if you remember, we, we've we had our uh, go-arounds and discussions. I think we were in in uh, D.C. once we had dinner, and and uh, I don't know if we ever ate when we were just discussing things. So. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I do remember, do recall that was a um, the Italian restaurant, and you noticed something there that I didn't, I hadn't really paid attention to, but I, you know, I guess it was because you know when you live in D.C., you kind of get used to the fact that there are little critters running around, and you saw something crawling up on the wall, you like, that'd be roach. I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and you lost your appetite, but we had a <laughs> great conversation, and you asked a very important question, which I think is relevant to what we're talking about. You, you asked the question that I had to, you know, at first I got mad at, but then I had to sort of ask, you know, ask that question to myself, are you happy? <laughs> and that's a very important question because it's not just about being successful, I think at that point I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do, whether I was going to finish undergraduate, because I was basically I was a, sort of a sort of kind of going back to school, wasn't really sure whether I wanted to go to grad school, but it speaks to something else. It really is when you ask somebody about that, it really is about your spiritual state of mind, right? Um, and nobody says that you have to be walk around with a, with a grin and, and, and you know on your face all the time. That's not 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 the issue at hand. It really is about, you know, are you at a place where, you know, happiness is attainable, it's reachable, if not all the time, at least some of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, I, I, I think that um, you hit the essence of it, and um, I, I like to say to people, I don't consider myself a prude, uh, but you know there are some things that that are important and and uh life experiences bring you to uh, to that place and thankfully um I, I think my experiences have come because of the result of uh some great foundations and uh, in terms of uh parents and uh siblings and and other relatives and and what they exposed me to and believe it or not, even um, some of the, the schools uh, which aren't receiving much great headline today, but I, I think in the time when when I attended school in the Cleveland public schools, um, they were fairly close to to giving us a classical education. I mean, we we visited the museums, we we had. Um, uh, extracurricular activities so um every child that wanted to could play an instrument uh, or some form of music um and every child had to have some sense of of uh physical education we had uh, even in elementary school phys ed days that the parents would come now i understand a lot of things have changed since then that that uh, the whole notion of of mothers being uh, available to come to a phys ed day uh, is, 
has been changed because of two income families that are mm-hmm. that are quite frankly needed. But uh, the point was that they had a, enough sense of of how important those things were, the arts and involvement yeah. and, 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 and excellence in whatever it is that you're doing. And so right. these were were points of experience for me that uh, kind of exploded uh, later in my life when when I was not going down that road. And uh, so, wait a minute, you. There's a saying that so when you know better, you do better. Uh, and mm-hmm. and I said to myself, well, you know better than that. And so, so uh, <laughs> I allowed myself to. Uh, to catch myself, so uh, right. and, and I don't think, quite frankly, that we provide that for children today. I think, that, unfortunately, uh, so many of our children are raising themselves and yes. have very little um, support. Um, now, what some people call support is uh, let, letting the child do whatever it is that he or she feels like doing. And that's not support. It's not no. training. It's not, no. not modeling. It's not imaging. Um, and uh, some go the other extreme, and and then uh, they choke the child's creativity by not letting them experience and sometimes fail, but be there to pick them up and get them dropped, brushed off and and back onto another way. Now that that's my uh, perhaps my naivete, but uh, that's my view of what was mm-hmm. done for me and mm-hmm. so many others that grew up in my time. Right. Well, I mean, I you know, I had a lot of a lot of the same, you know, what, what we used to call home training. Um, yeah. You know, you know, because your uh, your mom, my you know, grandma uh, and granddaddy, uh, you know, taught by example. You know, I you know I recall. Remember the garden that that um, uh, yeah. Grandma and Granddaddy had. Yeah, and you know, going out to Mr. Lofton. Mr. Lofton, uh, for our audience, Mr. Lofton, um, who was a family friend, um, who had uh, this huge property, uh, beautiful home, huge property, um, out in Ravenna, Ohio, and every year um, we would all go out. Uh, mom, dad, me, my brother Marvin, grandma, granddaddy, auntie, my aunt Carolyn. Um, we would all go out there. We all had our, you know, little gardens and whatnot. And we learned the value of organic before organic became uh, trendy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, you see, you see it now in, in, in urban settings, you know, urban gardens, but we knew about that. We knew the value of actually going out there, um, you know, cultivating your own food, harvesting it. Um, you know, I recall my mother, um, you know, who for a time was a stay-at-home mom before she returned to work. Mom used to do canning. She made pickles, peaches, jellies, yeah. applesauce, all of those things. And so, you know, it's it's those kinds of things that help, you know, Keep you, you know, keep you grounded. Help you to to learn about, you know, working with your with your own hands. Uh, you know, I hear that you know that our DOP candidate is now, 
you know, trying to get people to, to, to think about that. But, you know, it's, it's more than just words. You have to actually be in it and actually have to experience it. And I used to hate the bugs. Yeah. But, I mean, <laughs> I loved it. I loved being able to, you know, because there's a, a huge forest. We used, to, we used to go hiking, you know, that kind of thing. And so those things teach young people about nature, about valuing life, um, and, and, and valuing that process of, you know, you're going to start something, finish it, make sure that you are, you know, that you're actually paying attention to the details. You know, if you don't, um, you know, cultivate correctly, you could lose an entire, you know, crop. And, right. you know, that's money and time time wasted. Right. You know, but in terms of creativity, you know, I, you know, Grandma and Granddaddy did not let us watch TV. Yeah. You know, you've been over there a lot. You, you, you would see us. Where were we? We were out, outside, on the porch outside. We could play. We could read, you know, and I used to like to write even as a, as, as a young kid. But, you know, there was no such thing as just sort of sitting in front of the television um, and just kind of vegetating. Um, and so mom, was, mom and dad were like that as well. And so, you know, that's really, you know, really where it's at. But, I mean, it's also interacting with your neighbors. You know, there are folks who still remember grandma and granny, and they've passed on, you know, yeah. God rest their soul. But there are people who still remember Grandma and Granddaddy. They were always about not just family, not just extended family, but also about the community. And that's right. what's missing. That's right. what's missing. I, you know, I don't know the names of my neighbors. You know, I live in an apartment building. I don't know the names of my neighbors. Um, you know, maybe their faces, but I don't know their names. And it's really not encouraged these days. Everybody just sort of stays in their own little unit and functions like that. And, you know, I'm not sure where we're going as a country if we continue to only think of ourselves and not think of the community at large. And that's one of the, one of the reasons why I really like what you have done, um, you know, with your church, encouraging um, community. Could you, could you talk a, a little bit about that? Well, I, I you know, what you've uh, discussed opened so many different uh, thoughts to me and, and emotions, um, and I, I'll be more than happy to talk about the church. But just one thing I, I wanted to say is that, you know, um, there is a sense of of uh, how do we define community. Uh, you know, yes. theologians have have worked on defining community and and uh, of course Martin Luther King uh with the notion of community uh Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh in in some sense we we get it uh, right from the bible right in the in the first book Genesis with um Cain killed his brother Abel and uh and the Lord asked him where his brother was at, and he said, that, "You know, I don't know. Uh, am I my brother's keeper?" <laughs> and so uh, we we have that discussion, and a central discussion of that today uh, with the politics, and I, and I think from from then on we've uh, we've constantly been in in this struggle, and there's this there's this discussion today of 
of whether uh, the president, uh, President Obama, uh, has us moving to be a socialist country, and we've forgotten our rugged individualism. And, and you know, um, we can dismiss that if we would like, but I think to to, quite frankly, dismiss it would be to miss an opportunity to engage into uh, some dialogue mm-hmm. about who are we. And uh, I think uh, so often we are really, um, in some ways, contrary to what what and who we say we are, our actions mm-hmm. are, are at least. But let, let, me, let me talk right. to you a little about uh, Calvary Baptist Church in Haverhill and Okay. Uh, we 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 got here. We, my wife and I, and my two children. We 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 came to New England, uh, the Boston area, um, and I had actually been offered a job at New England Life Insurance Company as a trainer in the training department, and um, it it didn't, for whatever reason, work out at the time. Now. Uh, I just dismissed it and said, well, I guess it wasn't meant for me. I mean, I had come to Boston, and um, the the guy that was hiring me had given me information of, about being in touch with HR, about a look for housing and everything. And I went back home telling my wife that, well, uh, this is something that's going to happen. Now, in the background of this is very important. Um, my late mentor, who actually died on this day 10 years ago, uh, the Dr. Uh, Anthony Campbell, Anthony C. Campbell, uh, preaching professor at uh, Boston University School of Theology and well-known throughout the world. And and quite frankly, he took me to to the world. I traveled with him to to Oxford and studied there. I traveled with him to to, uh, Turkey, uh, Istanbul. Um, I traveled with him around the U.S. and in this area, learning from him and uh, some other very special professors at Boston University at that time. Um, So I I was what Tony Campbell called a jackleg preacher. I had been licensed and ordained uh, by uh, the Reverend Cornelius Bartley from New Hope Baptist Church in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Now, this may seem odd and strange to you, and I've been pondering it. Um, on this day, uh, Dr. Campbell's, uh, one of his mentors and friends, was John Silber, um, the some call the eccentric and, and um, uh, very brilliant but, but uh, uh, hardcore president of, of Boston University, who quite frankly, was, uh, I think you'd have to give him credit for the university growing to the level that it did. Well, John Silver died today, on the same day that that one of his mentees, Tony Campbell, died 10 years ago. He died today. Also, oh, wow. dying, also dying today uh, in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, was my mentor and my father in the ministry, Reverend Cornelius Bartley. So, you know, all these things hit me uh, today, thinking about what they would say, what they would do, and how mm-hmm. they would do it. But I, I was brought into the ministry by Dr. Bartley, Reverend Bartley, 
and learned so much, but I had not been to to seminary. Uh, I was licensed and I was ordained. And he said to me at the time, I'm doing something that I don't understand why I'm doing it, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, I want to equip you when you go uh, to Cincinnati at the time. And so we we had moved to Cincinnati. We were in Cincinnati, and and uh, I was still trying to get into school, but working, and we had just had uh, uh, our our youngest daughter, Jennifer, while we were in New Jersey, and so she was still a baby, and Eli was still young. And so I, I finally uh, was able to, to get into some discussions, and out of nowhere, about a year and a half after I had gone to Boston, thinking that, well, I'm going to still be here in Cincinnati, and I'm trying to get involved in school here, and and did uh, to some extent, but nothing that was accredited or nothing that was was giving credits. Um, I got a call, a call from an ex-Irish policeman by the name of Dan Brennan, and he said that, uh, you remember me? And I said, well, I certainly do. And uh, he began talking about position, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, it's one thing you need to understand. I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to interview for a position anymore. You're either calling me because you're going to hire me, <laughs> or, or we're just having a great conversation. He, he said, that's fair, and uh, I'm, I'm going to hire you, <laughs> if you will take it, to help me oh. with uh, a management development. So that's how I got to Boston. And when I got here, uh, again, I was thinking that I was going to try to get to school in Andover Newton, um, so American Baptist School, and I was making a transition to American Baptist um, in addition to the National Baptist USA. And and for your listeners that probably don't know, uh, you know, those are a couple of major um, uh, what we call conventions in, in the Baptist um, mm-hmm. uh perspective but anyway mm-hmm. uh, there, there's something called dual alignment in which in fact that's that was what my d men thesis was on uh, dual alignment in ordination but uh, meaning that you are in two conventions and uh, i was meeting new people and i met a, a person who who looked at me and said you know um, you're you're trying to find these people over at Andover Newton, and they haven't returned your call. Why don't you come with me? I know uh, Dean Martin over at Harvard uh, Divinity, and uh, you know I thought he was kidding with me, Dean Martin. I thought he was talking about you know the the entertainer. And I said, look, I'm not playing. He said, oh no no no, that's his name. He's the dean. <laughs> this guy Martin is his name. He's the dean. And so we laughed about that, and I went over and spent an afternoon with uh, Guy Martin and. And on my birthday in uh, 1986, I received an acceptance letter from Harvard uh, to come in and to study. Uh, and the, the thought was I was going to do uh, two years uh, Master's of Theological Studies because I was working and trying to do the MDiv, which was the same coursework, was a little difficult because of some uh, clinic uh, and field ed things that I would need to do that I wouldn't necessarily need to do with a master's of theological studies. But the, the the MTS was also geared for people who had a notion that they were going to 
study for a doctorate. And um, I said, well, sure, I'm going to do that. But um, while I was at Harvard, um, I was asked to consider three different churches. Now, that's that's significant because here uh, the churches were small, still are a lot of them, and they had such a privilege over the years of having uh, people come to one of the nine seminaries that are affiliated in the Boston area. And it, it gets to be uh, something that people feel that they're training. This is the way Calvary felt. Now, Calvary was founded in 1871 by ex-slaves from Virginia. And they had uh, migrated uh, north. And we, we've asked the question because we, we don't have any historical data as to why. Uh, Calvary did have a fire in 1977, and we don't know if some records were destroyed or and, and no one here currently knows exactly why, although we do have some uh, people still affiliated with the church whose family were some of the original founders of the oh, church. Wow. So uh, it was a handful, and they they said that they wanted to, to to worship in the style that they were used to from Virginia. And so they started a prayer cottage, and we have pictures of that prayer cottage. Uh, actually started in Bradford, which is uh, all, uh, in terms of municipalities, part of Haverhill now, but it was Bradford, Haverhill, and Lawrence, and they were all one city at that time, a huge place. But it was also a place that was known for uh, shoemaking, hat-making, a lot of industry. And if you think about post-Civil War, uh, there were immigrants coming to this Merrimack Valley area, and so there were Italians, there were Poles. They, they, until recently, even had some of the Catholic churches that were basically set up uh, along that line. Now, uh, Baptists did the same thing, but the Catholics were, were uh, I, I think, more known for it, that they actually had a Catholic church, but it was the Polish Catholic church. It was the, the Italian Catholic church. It was uh, all of those things. So, well, Calvary uh, was the colored church. You know, I found that they were not the only church of, uh, with people of color, uh, but they're the one that survived over the years. And But they never had a pastor there more than four or five years. Uh, and their, uh, William Epps, who is a well-known pastor at Second Baptist Church or in Los Angeles, or you might remember um, where um, Johnny Cochran was a member of. And, okay, uh, yes. And um, yes. There, yes. there were some other Morehouse uh, connections there before William Epps uh, went there, but he's the pastor there. But Calvary was his first pastorate. He left Calvary um, after about, I think, nine or ten months as he came out of Andover Newton, and, and again, training ground, right? And um, yeah. he he left and went down to be with Adam Clayton Powell uh, at Abyssinia in New York. Wow. So, so it, it has that kind of pedigree with uh, Dr. Roscoe Cooper, who's in Richmond. It was his first pastorate. He succeeded William Epps. And, and uh, my predecessor 
was uh, Dr. Conley Hughes, who is now pastoring Concord Baptist, is one of the larger uh, Baptist churches in Boston. And Conley went in to be the pastor there when they had the fire, and they were actually worshiping in the uh, Unitarian Universalist Church across the street. They uh, opened up their doors, and that's significant because, again, uh, in terms of our theology, uh, there yeah. are some will say, well, you know, the UUs don't agree with your theology. And I said, no, they they don't, but in some ways, some of them do, but that's their theology. You can come in there with any kind of uh, belief about Christ that you would like, and they would welcome you. Uh, but they opened their doors. Now, uh, a church up the street, and then uh, two two Baptist churches up the street, predominantly white, did not do so. And what we were, they were advised, I should say, at the time, was that you know your congregation is so small, you need to just close up and go join with the others. And and when you hear that, you think they're talking about those congregations up the street. That's not what they were talking about. They were talking about the nearest predominantly black congregation, which was in Lawrence. Uh, so you, you see the racial overtones. Uh, you yes, know, you do. You, 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 you need to join with them. So Right. Well, they, that's what's the saying? What's the saying? That Sunday is the most segregated day of the week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, although, Would you say uh, that that's still the case? Well, some of us have... Have uh, I don't say overcome it, but we've we we have a different look. As a friend of mine asked me, uh, uh, Dr. Marshall Elijah Hatch, who was a Merrill Scholar at Harvard and pastors the iconic um, Pilgrim uh, Newmont Pilgrim Baptist Church, which which used to be uh, St. Leo's Catholic Church, but it it has a huge um uh painting of the middle passage on on stained glass in the in the ceiling uh which dr uh, hatch had done there but dr hatch um asked me a question once he said thomas he said what's it like to pastor white folks <laughs> said, because we have some we we have we have some irish we have some italian we have some Dominicans. We have a lot of Haitians, a lot of Jamaicans. And then there's a lot of the rest of us uh, old-fashioned Negroes. So uh, we we <laughs> we we have a, a very special thing we do at Christmas. We sing uh, Silent Night, and we sing it in the language familiar with those that I've just mentioned to you. And I right. I normally bring up the rear with German because of. Uh, my uh, studying in Germany, not because of the greatness of my German, but uh, anyway, anyway, when Conley, I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, Conley stayed there for nine years, and he helped them to rebuild the church. Loved the big bill, and so by the time uh, someone uh, asked me when I was getting out of my cab at the Divinity School down in Cambridge. And said, Thomas, I got some places I need for you to go, and one of which was Calvary. And by the time that was asked of me, uh, Conley had already accepted uh, uh, Concord as a, a new ministry. Uh, 
and uh, they were looking for someone, and they only had uh, still probably about forty or fifty people on the books, and and not that many coming. Um, again, one of these quirks, and I don't think coincidence. Uh, the person that introduced me to Harvard was preaching there for Conley one Sunday, and and he asked us if we'd like to travel out a little bit. And we were living in Newton, Massachusetts at the time. I said, sure. And so we drove out. And on the highway, I told my wife, I said, boy, this is too far. I would never do this. Not knowing that later that year I'd be making that trip three or four times a week, <laughs> because I I, I did uh, get a, a relationship going with them. They did ask me to be supply pastor for a while, while they were still looking for a pastor. But by being called a supply pastor, they asked if I would also like to be considered for the pastorate, and I said sure. And so in October of 1988. I was called to be the pastor. I was still working at New England Life. I was still at Harvard Divinity School. And now living in Newton, traveling to Haverhill, Massachusetts, uh, to be the pastor uh, of this this church that just had a handful of people, uh, a big bill that we needed to pay off, mortgage that was on the building. And uh, we paid it off in four years. The church grew quickly. We bought new land. Uh, we we purchased uh, buildings in back of us, um, and so we've expanded in terms of our footprint. Um, and we've been there now 24 years. And it was a place that I told my wife we'd be there probably four years, and then we'd we'd go to a big city. We'd go back to Cleveland, or we'd go to to uh, maybe Atlanta or Charlotte. And or Detroit and and all of those places had interest or churches expressed interest in my resume, but I was, as they say, always the bridesmaid, but never the bride. Um, and my promise to my wife was always upgraded. So, but we we uh, we laugh about it. Well, I laugh about it. She doesn't laugh about it. She said, you promised me you were going to get me out of here in four years. <laughs> but but uh, she's done a magnificent job with a, a wonderful youth program uh, that, quite frankly, I would compare to any around in terms of seeing the child and uh, as a, a, a responsible spiritual being that needs to be nurtured. And, uh, right. and she has done and, and others who've worked with her in youth ministry have done this. And and I, I think that's one of the characteristics of Calvary that our children feel like this is their church. And because we, we do uh try to uh applaud them. We I know a lot of places people are watching their watches but uh I will ask children who's got something that we can celebrate together and and uh, let me tell you Sherry they will bring report cards <laughs> they will bring awards and, and if you think about it in the area that they live uh, some of them have uh, have gone through some very difficult times in the schools 
in the neighborhoods, being the only child of color. But when they come to 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 church, mm-hmm. they see such a mix and a blend that they love being there. They see others that look like them. Uh, they see others who who are willing to receive them. And uh, so we do that. We take that time. And some of those who were children, babies, are now uh, going out into the world. Uh, Brittany Mackey, the Phi Beta Kappa from Spelman, who also a Fulbright scholar, but her brother David uh, graduated from Morehouse, um, son Eli Morehouse. And, but, I, I mean, we could go on and on we, from, from medical school, law school, um, children from Calvary have come, and and we're we're happy about that. Uh, it's not a matter of bragging, we're, we're, but we're happy, and we tell them, uh, don't forget where you've come from. Look back mm-hmm. and give forward. So, but I've talked a lot, so we'll let you ask the question now. Yes, yes, yes. Well, what I wanted to to kind of um, ask you about. Um, you know, because one of the things that we, you know, that, that we have discussed, um, you know, we've, we've, we've talked a little bit about your history um, in Calvary Baptist Church. So I think it's very important for, for folks to know, uh, you know, how, you know, the, the significance of the black church um, in New England. Um, one of the questions that I did want to ask you about and wanted us to talk this evening about practical theology. Mm-hmm. Um, the other um Question I wanted to ask you about um, had to do with uh, with uh, Fresenius, um, you know, which kind of goes to the heart of what you know what, what you've been dealing dealing with um, in, in terms of your own personal uh, journey through your your um, your health challenges yeah. and whatnot, which in some ways seems to be almost like you've um, opened another door in terms of, of, of ministering to, to people, and you asked a very good question in this. Um, you know, in this epistolary account of your um, your journey, is my life of lesser value now? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, which one do you want to start off with? Well, uh, the latter. Um, I, I have been uh, dealing with, um, in, in the last five years, uh, some uh, illness. And there was a time where I didn't uh, really... Uh, share it much, uh, and I, I, you know, and of course your mother and, and and your aunts and the family know. But I was I was on my way uh, back to Germany, and now I'm studying for a PhD in Germany at Goethe University, and uh, I also taught at Goethe for a year, uh, a class at the undergraduate level, but also assisted teaching at the graduate level with. Um, my mentor and supervisor, or, or as they say in Germany, my doctor father, um, uh, Hans Gunther Heimbrock, who was serving as dean at the time of the, what we would call um, uh, evangelical theology or, or Protestant theology. Um, I, I was in Cleveland and to stop to see family. I wanted to see my father and my daughter and others before going back. And I was at a critical point of of uh, readying to turn in um, uh, a more advanced outline. And certainly the first chapter had some legs to it. Um, and my theme 
of uh, my dissertation theme was uh, home and uh, and talking about uh, home as critical to uh, our understanding of our theology. So um, I, I at that time had a heart attack while in Cleveland and was there in uh, a hospital for about 11 days and some some difficulties with catheter and not knowing some things and and, uh, and it, it it just required that long well when i got back to uh, boston um i had to turn around and come back to cleveland as as um, one of our uncles died uh, hoover uh, mm-hmm. uh thomas yeah. yeah, and and you know how important he has been to all of us in, in yes. terms of uh, uh, having a sense of of identity and 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 doing. So it was a very difficult time for me. But when I got back from that trip to Cleveland, um, I was scheduled to meet with my primary care physician, and <clears throat> I suggest to to everyone that you need to get in. You know the Tom Joyner thing. Take someone uh, to the doctor or go to doc- to the doctor day. Uh, really need to take it serious. There there were some signs that I had, but I kept saying, well, you know, I just need to to just get myself in shape. If I maybe start running and maybe get to a gym, and <clears throat> my issues were uh, were that were those I should say, but. But it was not that specifically because I had some deeper underlying issues. And it turned out uh, and when I went into uh, the see the primary care physician, I was not feeling well that day, and I had to go into the hospital and ended up about 10 days in Boston Medical. And they uh, said, well, we've got some good news and some bad news. And I said, well, give me the bad news. And they said, well, you have an aortic dissection. And I say, aorta, what? And I said, you know, I knew aorta. And if something's wrong with my aorta, that's that's a pretty big deal. And it that's is a, a big tear, deal. That's a tear, isn't it? It's a tear, I, it's, right? I, it's a tear, right. Yeah. And probably from elevated blood pressure. Um, and uh, they don't really know. It could have come from catheter when they... Uh, were checking to see if there was damage to my heart, which there was not. Um, I mean, these are all the possibilities. Well, right. I, I now entered into another area, and you have to listen to what doctors say because they don't always tell you exactly what you need to hear, uh, but they'll say enough that you you need to ask, well, what exactly does that mean? And uh, what they were saying to me, uh, is, you know, people don't normally survive this for very long, and I'm I'm realizing now, goodness gracious, and I think your aunt uh, uh, Janie, my wife, uh, also realized. I think we both hit that realization that these people are saying that I may not leave the hospital, and so. It caused me to really evaluate, okay, what am I doing 
and what are my chances of doing this and doing that? Mm-hmm. And I, I came to a point where, where when I did leave the hospital, it was because we insisted that that I was not going to be a guinea pig there in the hospital. Uh, right. That I was leaving, and uh, so I left the hospital. And uh, quite frankly, I was just feeling tired all the time. I did not realize uh, some of the other effects. Um, what the what happened eventually over the next four or five years was that I was not getting blood in sufficient manner to my kidneys, and so uh, my, my kidneys started degrading. And when the kidneys start going, you can get into what they call um, renal anemia, and renal anemia uh, will have you feeling tired. Uh, and, I, and I say this to people all the time when they're telling me how tired they are, and, and I ask them, do they have they had a, a blood work uh, done? Have they checked for lupus? Have they checked for uh, their their renal condition? Because uh, your your hemoglobin uh, will be sapped and, and brought low, and uh, quite frankly, you feel like a wet dish rag most of the time. And sometimes, yeah. you know, you can be on a job, you could be doing some things, and you're wondering, and, and people are saying, man, or, or, or woman, you you are just always sleeping, always tired. Well, believe me, when when you have renal anemia, that's a, uh, an apt uh, description of what you feel like. You're always tired. Uh, even a flight of stairs become a challenge. So I had all these challenges, and the diet had to change. But still, uh, because of what I saw in family and other people, uh, some doctors uh, had advised me that it would be a good time to to get a fistula. And I said, no, I know that word, and I'm not going to go there, because all I had heard about was the trouble so many people have had with fistulas. Well, uh, again, we make decisions, and if you know uh, better, you'll do better. And I didn't know better because I cut them off, and, you know, I said, no, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that. And really, I should have done that then um, because some of the issues that I've been going through in the last two to three years would have been dealt with. But... Um, Dr. Jonathan Woodson, who was uh, one of the, the vascular surgeons at Boston Medical, uh, a man of color, who um, was appointed by President Obama to be the under um, Secretary of Health for Veterans Affairs, and, and he went in uh, about a year or so later, uh, maybe even two years later, because, of course, Republicans had blocked uh, any of uh, the president's appointees, but when they had the tax deal, mm-hmm. uh, he was one of the people that was approved. And so uh, he left. And, uh, of course, I, I said to him, uh, I wish you weren't leaving because I, I had great confidence in him. wife had great confidence in him. And, and, and since, since then we've switched to some other people. But anyway, uh, dealing uh, now uh, in the fact that I'm on dialysis um, has changed my life. And as my uh, nephrologist said to me the other day, um, 
she said, you know, uh, one of the issues is her interpretation of me is that you, you're such a strong person, a strong in mind, uh, because I uh, was supposed to have been dead a couple times. Uh, but, you know, God just said not yet. Um, she said that uh, she knows that I'm still thinking that I will do life the same way that I've been doing it. And I laughed because I said, well, you hit me right on the head because that's what I'm I'm looking at. I've gotten back to the pulpit. I'm preaching on Sundays. I'm teaching the adult Sunday school class again. And I'm trying to, to, to get some things worked out where I can get back to Germany um, and you know, because I, there's certain things I still want to do. But what I did come to from what she said to me is that life changes. And uh, part of the, the change that was given to me was a, a program through uh, the dialysis provider, Fresenius. Now, again, uh, all these uh, so-called coincidences and, are, are not, uh, I don't believe they are. This is the way God fixes things. Um, Fresenius is a German company, and I didn't know that. And um, I, but I was with Fresenius, but they have a a U.S. Uh, affiliate and, or, or division. And in the U.S. division, they started a program called Right Start, and it was geared to have people. Uh, understand that now that they're on dialysis, there's some things, questions they need to ask themselves, questions they need to ask others, ways that their life is going to change. They need to understand that life does not end because you're on dialysis, but it certainly will provide uh, you with a need to understand the differences, uh, time management, um, diet um, just how you feel on an ongoing basis. So um, I um, began on dialysis in September 2010, and it was on an emergency basis. Again, I had uh, set up to, to have some things done. Dr. Woodson had put in a fistula, but it wasn't yet um, matured. So the emergency made them put a catheter in my chest. Um, and we know, those that are familiar with with this uh, problem of uh, dialysis, that a catheter uh, is uh, one of the, the riskier ways uh, of receiving your dialysis treatment because you, you can't receive as, as good a cleaning because uh, of the rate of the machine. Uh, can't okay. move as quickly, but anyway, okay. I've been on on uh, that and had some issues with that, and uh, had a couple other emergency operations in addition to that. Um, but again, God bless us because I I went to Mass General, which is currently ranked as the world's top hospital uh, and one of the the top surgeons uh, in the world. And um, when I was in Cleveland, I got sick uh, a few uh, weeks ago and was spent five days in Cleveland Clinic. So now, you know, the Lord continues to bless me to go to the best clinics with the best doctors. But uh, the theology of my illness is where I'm at right now. 
I was so, just about to ask you, how has this transformed your, your ministry? Because, yeah. you know, we we don't often think about um, the health of the, of the minister. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I have often have this discussion with, with my mother and uh, your sister. Yeah. I think I might have to end up having to call from the board because I was expecting her to call in. I don't know what happened to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that we do talk about, and I always remind my mother whenever she's, you know, doing uh, that or doing mm-hmm. some, you know, you know, to pay attention to her health because when you're, you know, when you're doing spiritual um, work, mm-hmm. and it is work that you're doing, yes. that it taxes your body. It taxes your body. Somebody's calling in from Massachusetts. I'm going to see who this is for a hot mm-hmm. second. Hi there. Hello. Hmm. Okay. Well, maybe they'll talk. Um, but one of the things that I, um, you know, one of the, the, the things that I do like to um, like to kind of remind mom about is to, um, you know, she's got to take care of her, got to take care of herself, and that, you know, when you're, you know. Visiting um, sick parishioners and and just ministry in general, I, I think that we sometimes forget that when you are you know you're doing your work in, in the pulpit, mm-hmm. it taxes the body. You know, it, it can tax the spirit if you, if you allow it, but the body has to be you know it's, it's still your temple, and so I think that we sometimes forget that we you know. We have to we have to do that. I think about that as a teacher. I you know I I did four classes today. I'm teaching. I'm doing mm. an overload this semester. Yeah. Which go ahead and that's maybe that's nutty on my part, but I, you know I'm finding that it's important that I recharge. You know, mm-hmm. teaching is not the same as being in the pulpit, but boy yeah. oh boy, you sure are preaching, and you sure are ministering to people. Yeah. Because people are bringing all their emotions in, and it can right. touch you. You, you. you know, um, the seminaries are doing a much better job in in addressing this with some of their students. Uh, in the spring semester of 2011, I I served uh, the the Center for Practical Theology at uh, Boston University School of Theology. I, I served as minister in residence. I was on sabbatical from the church, and um, I had a chance to address a few classes, and and I talked quite frankly about uh, my medical situation. And you know, some would say, "Well, why would you do that?" You know, uh, if they were going to do you and allow you to do any teaching, you know, they probably won't now. And I, so, no, I'm I'm going to have uh, my my classroom is the world, <laughs> so I'm going to to be dealing with people in in a much broader way. Uh, also from the pulpit, and I think uh, even our church people, and that's why I mentioned Tom Joyner, uh, we need broader uh, understandings of of how to deal with our health, how to ask doctors questions, and uh, even at younger ages, and for parents with kids in school. I mean, the number of children uh, that that are on uh, Ritalin or something else for attention deficit order, uh, it it just boggles my mind. 
I said, this can't be. What's going on? Is it the food? Is it the uh, other things? I mean, uh, and, and sometimes when you talk to parents of color, uh, that seems to be the first thing the school was saying to the parent. Uh, well, you need to get him checked for for uh, uh, ADD um, or, or or attention deficit disorder or and you know my wife uh, as head of youth ministry makes many trips to schools uh being an advocate for the child and sometimes it's around right. issues of health and sometimes it's talking to the parent about the diet about sleep about uh some very basic things that we took for granted because we have parents as we said foundational but um this issue of health is very important and and so the congregation in general uh, I, I'm happy to say we've had health days. We've we've had doctors that have been members of the church who have offered their time, and and we've had uh, people be able to receive blood pressure readings and other other things like that. Now, is it ongoing? Our vision had been is that we were going to try to start a health center, but wasn't able to do that. But even when that right. happens, uh, and I've talked to some pastors and and associates in certain churches where it's happened. Um, people will unfortunately think, well, that's for those folk, those those community folk. That's, that's not for me. You know, I got a private doctor. No, you need to go. And what's happening in communities, uh, suburban communities today, uh, outlying communities, they're all building new um, uh, medical facilities. We've got one. Uh, not two minutes from our house and while mm-hmm. we live in Little Pelham, uh, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, there's another uh, uh, next-door neighbor, uh, a little higher in income, called Wyndham. They have another uh, one, a big one. And, and if you, you start looking around, I think people are, are getting a sense that, well, the Obama Health Care Act is going to uh, really take hold and so they're putting these health centers in and so you know while you have the opportunity and if you're a senior a lot of resources are available at senior citizen centers so we, right. we need to, to help our seniors get to places help uh, the young people understand that you can't burn a candle at two ends um, right. help parents understand how to fix healthy meals for the family um so I, you hold, know, that hold, hold, hold that thought for a hot second. I, okay. I, I have two people on. They haven't spoken a word. One is a 508 area code. The other one is a 718, a, seven, a 970 area code. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody want to say hello? <laughs> You're on. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they prefer to just, just listen. But that, that's fine. That's cool. Um, but, but I, I, you know, I'm beginning to see some of that here in D.C., um, where you're beginning to see um, uh, churches get really get get involved with the whole health, the health, uh, the whole health issue, you know, or issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're we're seeing so many children who are suffering from obesity. Um, right. And and for 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 those of you out there who may you know who may have seen you know kids walking around who might be a little larger than what they probably need to be 
do understand that obesity is not a sign of that, that these children are well fed. They may actually be malnourished um, and are beginning to, we're beginning to see health problems like diabetes and high blood pressure before they've even reached 18, which mm-hmm. basically means, you know, that's when the countdown comes. I suffer from high blood pressure, and it's managed, especially since I lost like 130 pounds. I was, I was very close to about 300, and yeah. I was one of those people who basically burnt the candle at both mm. ends and didn't pay attention until my doctor told me, lose the weight or you would go blind, not from mm-hmm. diabetes or glaucoma, but from something called intracranial hypertension, which means mm-hmm. that's the spinal fluid. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was beginning to get pressure behind my eyes, um, the optic nerve, and it's a genetic issue. Um, I still have the issue, but I manage it through the weight loss, maintain my weight loss, moderate exercise, my, you know, all of those things. But when you see young kids that are having these issues, that means that before they've reached 18, they're already going to end up, you know, with, you know, all of the, the things that we associate with, with illness. Illnesses that we thought you probably wouldn't see until your 50s, maybe 60s. They're mm-hmm. getting these issues in their teens and their 20s, which means they may not even reach 40. Um, and so these are issues that, you know, um, that I that I do think are important that our churches do um, address, you know, along with HIV. HIV in mm-hmm, Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. area, um, you know, the, the numbers are scary. And a lot of folks who are becoming HIV positive, you've got, you've got a couple of populations that are, that are vulnerable. You have, you know, you have young people, you know, right. teenagers and, and young people who are not doing safe sex. Um, you know, and then, of course, you've got folks who are over 40 and senior citizens because for some reason they believe that they can't, they can't um, mm-hmm. get sick or can't contract it. And so all of these issues and churches here are now beginning to, reluctantly, you still have some, some churches that are, that are not, you know, that haven't woken up, but some of them have mm-hmm. um, because... It, it's not, and it's not about judging people. Whenever we, you know, whenever I think of, of, of HIV, whenever I think of like obesity, mm-hmm. um, high blood pressure, I, you know, or any of these other issues, it's not about judging people or, or making some kind of moral judgment. It's about care of the care of the body, and but care of the spirit as well, because something else, there's something else that's that's, 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 that's happening that leads people to make, you know, right. to, you know, to, to 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 be in these really. Um, you know, tenuous, you know, situations. You know, yeah. and if you're if you're eating, you're, you, you know, if you're if you're eating to the point where you're not able to, mm-hmm. um, where it's, it, there's something else that's going on. Yeah. And so, I know that for me, you know, food was a, you know, food was an, it, it was an emotional issue. But I know that, you know, and, and as you know, our families had to deal with 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 weight issues and right and, right. What, and whatnot. So. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So. Um, I think what I'd like to do at this point, believe it or not, didn't I tell you it's a two hours that you know that we would reach that we've reached the hour mark. What <laughs> yeah. I'd like us to do yeah, I told you the time would go by quickly. We haven't even gotten to practical theology. Right. Uh, of course I want you to continue to talk a bit about, you know, health and your and your ministry. What I'm gonna do is put everybody on hold for a moment 
and hope to God that I don't get rid of anybody in a group. Okay. If that happens, just call, just call back. Mm. Um, and what I'm going to do is give us a time to take a breather, get a drink of water, and then I'm going to try to see what happened to uh, Reverend Jeannie Turpin, who was really <laughs> easy to get on. Okay, All right? we'll be right back with um, you. When, we'll be right back. All right. Okay, guys, you put me on hold.
right. Um, are we back yet? Yes, we are. All right. I don't know what happened to Mom. I, uh, you know, and uh, so I tried out to see if I could find her, but I don't know what happened. Um, there'll be a storm. You know, there's a storm raging through uh, D.C. as well. So, oh. you know, could be one of those things. So, um, I don't know. I'm going to have her on at some point in October, so there hmm. is that opportunity as well. So mm. let us get back to it. All right. So we were talking about um, talking about health and, and whatnot, and, and talking about black churches and black churches. Um, there's a couple of things that I do want to, to cover. First and foremost, what is practical theology? There are a lot of my listeners who really are not familiar with that. Yeah, uh, the the this will be greatly simplified uh, because it's coming from a simple source. <laughs> but it, it it's uh, a term that, uh, quite frankly, does um, uh, beg the question. And 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 I was surprised of how many people and in, in, um, that I thought would be familiar with uh, the. Uh, at least the academic genre uh, of uh, titled courses, who ask the same question, um, and it it, it has uh, a, um, a a scientific background. Put it that way. That okay. uh, the term practical theology was originally used to describe theology. As a as a single science, having a practical win, and, and I borrowed this from from uh, Professor Edward Farley, um, who is um, at Vanderbilt uh, University, and and he has a book um, really written uh, to to put out some of his thoughts from years ago. He's uh, I think Farley's really up in age now. And it's called practicing gospel. Excuse me. And he talks about the problem of practical theology is that that um, in the earliest church um, notion that there should be uh, a core of of uh, of learnings uh, to to be able to understand what the church was about. Um, it, it it borrowed and said, look. Uh, there are uh, a special set of, of materials to be read that pertain to ministerial tasks. And uh, the first usage, though, comes from a set of studies uh, from a Dutch theologian. And, and, and most of those were grouped under what we would call uh, a study of ethics in church government. Um, and the term wasn't used much, but as you got into the 20th century, um, if you look back in uh, booklets and in um, in terms of of what courses were being offered in particular schools, you would see something called applied theology, and okay. that was meant to to give the same indication that we're talking about. Um, after you have looked at something theoretically as a science, is there any practical application of it? Does it uh, have 
uh, some application on a daily basis and and um really there was um uh, basically uh, two divisions there was applied theology and there was systematic theology and although in the late 18th century in Germany uh, practical theology became to mean those things that pertain to ministerial activities um okay. uh, the catechisms preaching pastoral right. care okay so right. those practical things um and so the the whole discussion we had about health and um I think you 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 said it well that the churches are are starting to to get involved with it it, it shows the dynamic nature uh, sometimes um a controversial nature of theology within a church because some are are not interested in that uh, and uh, we we just need to teach the bible and i think what they what they lose is that teach the bible to do what <laughs> on a <laughs> on, on, on a daily basis um if you you check the history and i, I think uh, all of us should have a good course in church history to help us understand that uh, there was not a, a rule book that was just pressed down and given to us. Some would say the Bible, and I would say no. Uh, the, the Bible uh, is, the, I believe, the inspired word of God. Um, but then how do we apply it? What What's all of these... Um, these rituals that we have going on in, in these different churches. Well, th these were uh, the things that different um, communities, different communes, different um, uh, societies, different conventions, different groups of people who were calling themselves Christians found that we we find ourselves most comfortable uh, doing these things, and it's necessary. So, uh, next time you go to church and you see an order of worship, those things just don't get there. Uh, there, there is a tradition as to why there's a doxology, which is a prayer. Why is uh, there uh, a prayer at this time? Why is there a devotion? Uh, mm -hmm. These were patterns that were set by uh, someone years ago that said that this is the way that we should worship the Lord. And, um, so we then try to find where is that in systematic theology, um, and and where where do we have that the the uh, the theory, and and so most people that are going uh, to be ordained, particularly in our Protestant areas, have have to uh, have a course in systematic systematic theology, uh, but there are some of us who believe that, well, that's fine, but then uh, you'll find that so many have no practical understanding of what it means. How is it applied to the church on a daily basis? And so that, and it's, not that, a, it's, not a, it's not a cookie cutter. You can't just say, well, it's going to fit all, because you right. have to take into context. You have to take into cultural context, um, historical context, what might work in one community may not work in another uh, community, um, and you know, and also there's there's 
there's something else to consider as you're talking. I'm thinking about well, you know, my own experiences as an adult um, when I was still a, a Christian, and you and I we've had our debates about this, but when I was still a Christian, as I was, you know, growing as a as as a scholar, and you know, being confronted with some, some questions and you know, and, and and of course, some of uh, me being a deconstructionist, bit of a socialist, and being confronted with the text, reading that, reading the Bible as a deconstructionist, as a feminist, is not going to be the same as sharing Aunt Turpin when I was 15, 16 years old. Although I was a feminist then, I I didn't have the body of knowledge that I have now, and so, you know. How do you minister to to people like me? Yeah, you know that's just it's not going to be the same. The same, and it's not not a question that I would have you necessarily have to answer in you know in in sort of a cookie cutter way because you know, but it's 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 a it's a it's a it's I think it is a valid question because when I you know it's it, and it's something that you know that I've had to to kind of confront even. When visiting, you know, when I when mom was out in, in Lorraine and I was looking, you know, sitting in on the adult um, Sunday school and listening to, um, you know, these nice church ladies go through what they consider to be their interpretive body or, you know, their practice in, a, in applying. And... I had to kind of hold my tongue, keep my mouth shut, because first of all, I was not trying to make trouble for mom. <laughs> mm. Number two, I did not want to come across as an elitist. Number three, I felt like a lot of what I was looking at was not only just, it seemed like there, there was, when, you, when you're dealing with, with, with folks who are not, you know, who, who really are just not, they're, they're in a particular space in terms of their understanding. Mm-hmm. For some people... You know, going. You know, to do Bible study basically means you read it mm-hmm. and say, "Yeah, that sounds that sounds good." For other people, it you know it means something else. And I'm somebody who used to be a part of the Unitarian Church, and Unitarian Bible study is not going to be the same as Baptist Bible study at all. And you know, we're you know ministers in the Unitarian Church they go to the same seminary as you as you go to, so they have a they they have. Um, you know they're they're still going through you know many many of those courses, and so that's definitely something that I'm finding not just in terms of Christianity, but that's actually a question. You know, me as as a person, I'm I'm, I'm Lakumi, and that's definitely a question. You can't really apply what you know what may have worked maybe 50 years ago. What may have worked. You know, um, you know, in, in, in the plantations in, in Cuba, you know, Cuba in 1865 is not going to be necessarily Washington, D.C. in 2012. And so, you know, it's the same, it's, it's a similar question, and it's dealing with some of the same issues. How do you apply? How do you put into practice what sounds great? While you're in, you know, while you're in divinity school, but then you got this set of people who really need to have that nourishment, that spiritual nourishment, and who need to have those tools to be able to apply on a daily basis. I don't know. Am I getting close yeah. to where you're well, at? Well, I, I, I don't have any 
any uh, fundamental disagreement with what you're saying. The only thing uh, that I would say is that uh, there are still foundational uh, things in, in some of the great theologians, uh, the, some that we, we call great, like Paul Tillich uh, would, would write uh, things like uh, um, uh, In Search of Absolutes. And so... Um, yeah, there are certain and, principles. And, yeah. Right, and and yeah. um, and and we we come into sometimes interesting conflicts in our own mind, uh, and I think this is just a threshing out. But you know, uh, some of the practical parts of of our our worship that we grew up with was music in uh, music in a, in a church setting. And uh, what kind of music, and and whether there should be music at all, uh, and uh, most churches do. There are some that don't, and, and I've had some experience with with uh, those that believe that the Bible says that take away thy vials, uh, that that God is tired of us trying to appease Him with our music, and I I, I personally think that's a totally erroneous reading of the text. Uh, and um, but even the kinds of music, um, some would call high church, uh, you know the 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 organs and the pipe organs, um, would would they would feel they haven't been to church, um, and then there are those who feel like they haven't been to church if they don't hear Hammond organ. Uh, uh, so one of the examples of what I mean by running into uh, uh, some clashes even uh, emotionally and experientially. Um, uh, a song comes to mind. Uh, give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. It was good for my dear mother. And so you see where it goes. Yeah, it, yes. it, it's hearkening back, and 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 this really gets to the the core of of, of some of my discussion about home, and and I think sometimes uh, we have trouble in our proclamation of the gospel, not because we are so so out there and not recognizing some cultural differences, but because we don't hold on to what we had. We don't understand where we come from. We don't understand what it means. And, in, and unless you know where, where you've come from, uh, how right. can you really be effective in saying that what, where you're at and where it's brought you to is worth yes. it? And yes. Because the, yes. if the gospel is anything, it's uh, about, it's the good news that believers will, sh- will share with others. Now, uh, if if someone is telling you about how good the Lord is, but they don't act like it, um, or or how great the church is, but they don't act like it, uh, and you say act like it, well, uh, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So if someone's telling you about how good God is, um, come on, go to church with me. I go once every six months. Now, there, there, there are those that might argue that, uh, well, I don't need uh, to go into a building. I don't need to go to, to a place to 
to to <laughs> be with God. Well, we believe that this is God's word, and we believe that God tells us to assemble ourselves because it goes back to that thing that I mentioned to you when we first started about community. And, right. Uh, the the community is very important, and when we uh, willfully and and with knowledge uh, turn our back on the community, then uh, how can we really expect to receive much from that community? Now, where and I, I don't mean to be um, negative towards people, but uh, most people like that you'll find either themselves or or their family when you go to the graveyard or when when the death has come uh, now the church needs to do this the church needs to do that and quite frankly um people uh, probably could could mouth what the lord was probably saying i never knew you and uh, but yet we we do uh, well, I should say at least Calvary. We try to be uh, helpful and hopeful to all people. Right. There there's some people who know have not been, uh, and I know some churches that will not allow uh, things to happen. In, in Germany, let me tell you how that they happen to to take care of some of that. If you go into the churches in Germany, um, the the mainline German churches, uh, you say, mm-hmm. "Gosh, this looks like a museum." There's a handful of people there. Uh, but then, you know, you ask someone who's familiar, and you say, well, how many members are here? And they'll talk about hundreds and maybe even a thousand. And you say, you got to be kidding. Where are they at? Well, uh, they don't go to church, but they're on the rolls. Well, why are they on the rolls? Well, uh, the German uh, government takes 8% of their their income uh, as a tithe to the church. Mm-hmm. and Mm-hmm. And they they do that because this person has said, I want to be affiliated with the church. I want mm-hmm. to uh, be able to call on the church for help. I want to have my children be able to, to use the church for marriage or me use the church for marriage. I want to be able to be buried by the church. And mm-hmm. they say, fine. Um, and uh, they don't go to church, but their money goes to church. Now, I I, I think there's a disconnect in a couple of ways there, because I think they need to be there. Uh, but it isn't simply the money. Um, it's what have you given of yourself. Right. And then there's the other issue. Uh, well, we've got a couple of issues there, um, a couple of, couple of problems that, were, that probably wouldn't work. Uh, well, I, I guess the, the question that I would have is, what about those who are atheists, those who are, who are not who are not Christian, do they also have to tithe, or, or is this just something that's that's just well? They, they, don't, they don't. They don't. They don't have a church unless they. I, I. I don't. This I don't know. That if they identify a place as their church that, that's an atheist church, I, I think their money would have to go to them. <laughs> you know. So, uh, what one calls a church, and that becomes a a, a bigger issue for us. I know I'm on, on the North Shore. Um, Clergy Association. Um, when I say North Shore, we're we're considered North Shore, but a little further to the coast, Gloucester and Salem and whatnot. Well, mm-hmm. uh, the Wiccans uh, have uh, joined the Clergy Association. Now, wow. uh, not 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 everyone 
agrees with that. When I was a student at Harvard, um, I walked by the bulletin board, and and uh, different student groups could could put different things up, and I would be frustrated because I'd say to um, not just Baptists but to African American students, and I and I know that's a bit unfair because you know there's the, the AMEs and the CMEs and and other churches, and not all black people are Baptists, but right. uh, uh, what I what I said to them is that I look on the board and the Jewish students uh, have uh, uh, a, a written um, uh, instrument, uh, a newspaper. Uh, the Catholic mm-hmm. students have a, a newspaper. Even the witches have a newspaper. But the only <laughs> ones that don't have one are the black students. I, and, you know, I, I've served on the Alumni Council for a little while, and I was head of the Black Student uh, Organization, Alumni Organization, for a while. And Mm -hmm. I did try to push that issue. We were able to get some things done in terms of awards while I was in, and uh, Ron Ivey uh, was in. Mm -hmm. But um, it's a a matter of taking um, some authority over who you are. Uh, right. And, and so no the whole thing your, about no matter what your religion happens to be, you know, no matter what your religion happens happens to be, you do have to at least, you know, you have to, you know, you have to speak up, you have to stand up, um, you know, and 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 be and be counted. Um, it, it, it's again, church. it's again what what uh, to put it in the vernacular of of folks uh, in the street, uh, talking loud and saying nothing. Is not going to get it because no, the people people will know you. Your children know you. You can yes. you can you can talk about how much you love the Lord and how much love is leads you in your life. But you know, um, it, uh, Jesus uh, asked us that if you don't believe what I tell you, at least believe the very works that I do. And you need, you need to understand that what you do is very important for people to believe who you are. Yes. So. And it's and it's it's a it's a it's a you know it's well okay my let, let me, grandfather let me, let me. he he said this to me um, when I was you know sort of kind of you know thinking about what I, where I wanted to go in my own spiritual journey and um, he said to me, he said, Lukumi is, is, is a way of life. It's not just something that you just kind of put down and you don't really think about or you just go, you know, you show up, you have, you know, and, and you, you know, and you, and you throw some money. And so you, you've got to be there. Your presence is, you know, it's, it's important and it has to be a part of your life. Your spiritual health has to be something that you, you work at every day in whatever capacity, in whatever way, whatever belief system that you that you happen to to be in, and it's mm-hmm. not about it's not about respectability. It's not about what other people think about you. It's about your personal relationship with your personal deity, or you know, even you know, if, if you're an atheist, your own health, your you know, your own emotional health. You have to, it's an everyday thing. It can't be something in which you just kind of, you know, kind of forget about. And I think mm-hmm. that in in our culture, we, we tend to forget that 
I think we're distracted uh, by mass media. We're distracted by celebrities. We're distracted by sports. We're distracted by cheap entertainment, reality TV, and, and, and money, and not really thinking about, well, is, at the end of the day, is that going to be who you call on when times are tough, when you, you know, when you're depressed, when you feel like you have, you know, no options, when your girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife has abandoned you, where, where is that foundation? Where is that rock? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think uh, if we get back to that paradigm of, of the practical theolo- uh, theology, um, it, it doesn't make the claim that they are a single science, uh, but uh, as a single science, as they were trying to be, or someone was trying to, to depict them as, we find that they're broken into uh, other areas, um, and they they aren't theoretical um, uh, at at their core, but the the larger circle of the the disciplines um finds that it's supposed to have all of the uh, accoutrements of a discipline and and so mm-hmm. um there's a discipline to to finding out uh how does this work on a daily basis and that and that's important because that drives uh, a lot of things uh, the ecclesial the church uh notion of what the church is but as a scholar it drives your understanding of method. Uh, you can't talk about doing um, practical theology, I don't believe, um, without dealing with that because you have to get to that uh, that area beyond the theoretical. And so what are people actually doing? You know what the theory is, but what are they actually doing? And... Uh, you use a lot of different things, or I do, uh, in some of the research that uh, working with the, the research associates of of mine in Germany, um, which has been terrific. We, we um, the, some of us, and I'm one, have taken the route of uh, looking at place, to looking mm-hmm. at at uh, pictures uh, as a, a moment in time, um, into to. to to really see uh, from a qualitative um, um, method what is it that that people are saying uh, because we might see them in a in a particular area, but what are they saying about that so it, it takes on uh, a little more depth uh, than uh, just working the numbers and and the numbers come out. So many have come to church, so that this means nothing. So uh, it, it's it's uh, I think a little more nuanced than that. And with that, um, there are some controversies about method in this area. There are some, uh, particularly in Europe, who use uh, phenomenological, um, mm-hmm. uh, not methods, but what we call in, in Frankfurt the phenomenological sensitivities. So for me, when I'm looking at this, uh, it's important for me to look at uh, the the issue of of feelings and emotions and 
Um, I was walking down the street in Hannover, uh, Germany, uh, during a session called Church Days, which is a very huge convention of um, primarily Protestant churches some years, and but um, in some years uh, Protestant and Catholic together. But this particular year it was in Hannover. It was just the Protestant churches and. And I had gotten down a back street, and it was a very beautiful street. Not all the hustle and bustle of other convention goers. And and then I heard music. And I said, wait a minute. That music sounds familiar. Well, the music was Motown. And mm-hmm. and I, I, I walked down, and I went in front of a place, and the title of the, uh, on the building, it was, a, it was a sandwich shop, and they had music, and and um, uh, things like that. Um, the name of the place was Heimweh, H-E-I-M-V-E-H, uh, and uh, uh, W-E-H, I should say. And what what Heimweh means? Anytime you see Heim, it's uh, Heimat or whatever. It's talking about home. And what Heimweh means is homesickness. And mm. I said, "Wow, this is perfect," because. I was homesick, <laughs> and 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 the music, the Motown music, was exactly the right music. And and one of the things in our research, as researchers, we have to try to then take ourselves uh, not out of it, but explain how our experiences have influenced what we see and what we hear and what we write. And, and that that sometimes is controversial uh, in terms of methodology uh, and scholarly uh, review. But there there are a number of uh, people around the world, and they meet annually, um, that are dedicated to this discipline, and they they come from all uh, sectors of the world and and uh, all all communities of the world, and and I've had. Uh, Personally, an opportunity to attend the meeting that was in Chicago, and uh, right. I, I met a guy who wrote a book, uh, Rage and Compassion, and uh, uh, he was a person of color. Uh, he's from Scotland. He's uh, the uh, practical theologian in Aberdeen, and it, it, you know, it, it was just uh, empowering for me to meet these different people who uh, looked different but yet uh, had a similar uh, journey uh, in terms right. of finding what does this mean. Uh, so, and, and, and you can go into uh, neuroscience uh, with it also. So what does it mean? How is it affecting you uh, in pastoral care? So um, wow. I, I, have, uh, I have rambled this evening, but I have really enjoyed talking to my niece. And I, I, I'm proud of you I'm really, and the work I mean, that you've I'm, done. I'm finding, yeah, I mean, I'm finding out so much about you. Can we talk not like this? And I know that at times when we have talked, we debated um, a, a lot of issues. And I know that sometimes I may have even... Um, May have even frustrated you uh, with you know you know whatnot, but you know one of the things that I've always appreciated about our conversations is that 
I was like, wow, this is definitely where it's at. And so I will definitely give credit to you, um, you know, in my in my book or yeah. books, really. Um, and so I am appreciative um, of that. One of the last issues that I wanted to kind of cover, um, and it's a current issue, and it's something that um, that actually disturbed me. In the Washington, D.C. area, and I know that in some of the other um, mm. metropolitan areas, you have some African-American ministers um, mm-hmm. instructing their parishioners to not vote in the um, presidential elections because of the controversy over Obama's and, and, and you know uh, decision to embrace gay marriage. Now I know that some you know that there are folks who may not agree with with that decision. I do agree with that, but I'm aware at, of, of the fact that for many people who are part of traditional churches, that may be an issue. But I think it's one thing to make a personal um, you know to, to make a personal decision about whether you want to vote, I think it's quite another thing to have someone stand in a pulpit and tell people to basically sit on the grave of yes. those who died right. so that we can vote, i.e., the 1965 Voting Rights Act did not just kind of appear. People died so that we could vote. Yeah. And I just wanted to kind of get your get your, um, your, your sense back. I, you know... I, I and I, and I tread lightly here because uh, I, I can become very emotional about it. But let me just say succinctly, well, maybe not so succinctly, but uh, quickly <laughs> that uh, I I'm just appalled at the ignorance uh, that my brothers and or sisters who would um, extol this position okay. are having. About the nature of, of of being a citizen in uh, a republic that demands that we uh, make decisions about our leadership. Right uh, now, uh, part of that making that that decision is voting, and it's not voting also, but uh, right. the abdication of that responsibility isn't biblical, um, in my opinion. Um, and uh, to, I mean, if you wanted to vote against o- Obama, then then do that. But right. for God's sake, get out and vote. Because we right. have too many people that have died for the privilege and the right. And even when you think about the the creation of what we call the United States of America, uh, and we we have people who were talking about uh, the great democratic principled uh, republic. Well, it wasn't that way when it started. You know, women didn't have the right to vote. Slaves didn't have the right to vote. Uh, we weren't and, human. We were three fifths. <laughs> right, right, and and uh, it, it's. Uh, uh, now I'll, I'll start a little stuff with you here. Even some of your feminists, after the Civil War, uh, turned their back. They were abolitionists also, but they turned their backs when it was said to them that, well, you know, oh Sambo may be mm-hmm. able to vote now, but you can't vote. And, right, and you're referring and, to the suffragists from the South who yeah. 
felt right. They were not interested in 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 black women. They were interested in their own interests. You you're not pissing me off with that. That's 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 a fact. Yeah. It's in, it's and it, it, it was something that um, that came up again. You know when it came time for uh, women to get the vote in 1919. And so um, well, I, why I, women I, were, were able to vote? I had a, a conversation, uh, we were discussing this in a class in Oxford uh, a few summers ago, and and uh, a guy was telling me that he was uh, arranging something in his church, and, I, and uh, they were asking our opinions, and I said, well, quite frankly, uh, I don't do anything around the name of Susan B. Anthony because <laughs> because of these issues. And, uh, mm-hmm. and he, well, I've never read that before. I said, well, you just ain't reading right. Um, which wasn't really the right thing to say besides being (laughs) grammatically incorrect it was not the right thing to say at Oxford but uh, it's that kind of battle that you have to fight uh, not only in the community at large but within your own community and that's that's the point I wanted to to bring that that, uh, we we have to, to know better so that we can do better and so I, I I called it ignorance, um, and I, I think it is. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, you take one issue that you're telling people because of that issue they're not to vote. Well, there's a whole bunch of other sins that are out there that and mm-hmm. if you're considering it a sin. There's a whole bunch of other sins. Uh, I don't hear you telling people, uh, not to vote because of that. When Clinton was running, uh, and there was already the rumor about infidelity, I don't hear any of you guys standing up saying, "Don't vote for Clinton." Uh, right. I, I mean, right. Uh, you know, and there, there, there doesn't seem to be that same sense of outrage. I mean, you've got someone declaring that forty-seven percent of the population, um, you know, doesn't matter. And you don't see this, the same kind of outrage. You've got, um, you know, you've got politicians claiming that um, that women who are women who are who are who are, who are raped are somehow um, able to close their wounds yeah. to sperm. Things yeah. like that that should actually get people to the polls, no matter where you know where you stand. I mean, you know, people are going to vote how they vote, and one well. of the things that I do. As a as a professor, I I make it very clear to my students. I tell them, I said, "Look, I'm not here to tell you who to vote for, and I'm not here to um to, to tell you that you should be a Democrat or a Republican or Green Party, but you should be registered to vote." And right. of course, you know, some of them are like, "Well, we're in D.C. We can't. We don't have a a senator." I said, "No, but you have." Council pe- you have councilmen and councilwomen, you have right. ANC people, you've right. got, you know, uh, all kinds of issues. I said you're taxpayers, you know, our school, UDC, is right. you know, it's it's taxpayer funded. So right. you have a responsibility as a citizen to vote. And if you don't vote, don't complain when things don't go the way that you like them to, to go. And so mm-hmm. we as a community we really do need to vote. And so for you, those of you who are out listening, I don't care what you happen to uh, believe in or what's your, your your political party or, or what have you, 
um, register to vote. Now is the time to do that. Mm-hmm. And if you have the ability to vote early, do that. Right. But get involved because it's not just the presidential elections. It's um, state and local elections that you have to be responsible for. Right. I think that that's, that, to me, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a, that's an absolute principle, being responsible mm-hmm. as a citizen. To me, right. that's an absolute. And so we're winding down. We've got maybe about five or six more minutes. Um, I usually like to use this particular time for um, plugs. So if there's anything you'd like to kind of promote or plug, and I know you do, um, please do that. You know, if you have any websites you'd like people to to, to go to. Well, I, I, you know, again, just reemphasizing some of the things I've tried to speak about from my own background and um, as, as a basis. Um, you know, be concerned about your health, but also be concerned about the health of of, of those around you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, somebody calling from Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, is that uh, Carol Berge, or is that Phyllis Cuffey? Oh, Sherry. Yes, I'm here. I just that, was that, that was that that was uh, that was. Uh, uh, one of my members who uh, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that was Phyllis Cuffey. Um, I shouldn't say her name; maybe it wasn't her, but uh, sounded like her. And I know she has a, uh, a health products business. So, but, oh, uh, okay, all right. Uh, well, Miss um, Miss Cuffey, thank you for 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 joining us this evening. Did you have anything that you want to wanted to say? Oh boy. I don't think she's there now. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, but but that's okay. Um, um, you know, did you? The, the, did you the, the, I, I, going? I. Hello. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, just in in, in summing up, um, uh, something again, and it, hopefully it it kind of brings some things together for you. Uh, in the article, if you remember, um, one of the things, uh, and I was discussing this the other day um, with uh, a guy who's director of Baptist, and he he said, "My God, that that statement really helps me." And it's what mm-hmm. I wrote. It said that uh, I believe that African Americans, despite the estrangement of slavery, have a homeland, one that is cultural, not geographical. It is centered in religion and spirituality. Hence, the words "my church home" are powerful and meaningful. Uh, and yes. and uh, there is a a longing for home, um, and it's it's a universal form of of longing. And sometimes uh, it gets a bad name. Um, it it uh, in Germany. It was co-opted by the Nazis, and so you talk about the fatherland. Uh, so this whole mm-hmm. concept of Heim- Heimat is a big issue in Germany. Um, mm-hmm. And um, but uh, I find if you would listen to the the the, the song from the Wiz, and then this is going to be my last thing. Uh, okay. The, the, the lyrics that that, uh, that Smalls wrote. 
When I think of home, I think of a place where there's love overflowing. I wish I was home. I wish I was back there with the things I've been knowing. So, you know, we we learn from home. We go into the world. And when the great thing is when we remember home uh, because those things will keep us and they will will protect us if, in fact, right. we think about right. Heimat. Yes. Thank you, sweetie. Very good. Thank you so much. Um, and so thank you very much. Um, you have been listening to At the Edge, the Afrofuturist Salon um, with Reverend Dr. Gregory Thomas. And so we're going to end the evening with um, just a reminder to our listeners that Monday um, evening um, I will be interviewing Sherry Ways. Um, and so we'll be talking about Feng Shui, we'll be talking about interior home spaces and um, talking about her new book. Um, in addition, in the month of October, um, we will see a return of a couple of, of guests. Um, we'll, I'm going to be interviewing um, Vanessa Maddox, who is the CEO of the Girlfriend Group, and so we'll talk about her journey. Um, we'll be interviewing again Alpha Rafik, and we're going to talk about, among other things, um, interracial relationships, um, sexuality, and, and whatnot. Um, later on, um, maybe about mid-month or so, um, I will be interviewing um, uh, a few more guests. Um, Manix Flynn, who is a councilman from Dublin. He's also an artist, and he... Uh, is the author and primary performer for a play called James X, and he'll be talking about, among other things, um, his struggles and also some of the controversies surrounding the Catholic Church and uh, child abuse. And so we're going to have a few more guests on in October. So please um, remember to go ahead and Download this episode. It's on iTunes. It's on Blog Talk Radio. Don't forget to hit follow. Um, if you would like to leave comments, you can email me um, at alphafuturistscholar at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Dr. Turpin. Um, you can also find me on my blog. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, at afrofuturismscholar.com. And so do check out um, what I have um, available. And my older episodes, of course, are always available for download. But for now, have a wonderful evening. If you're in Washington, D.C., you better take an umbrella. It's stormy. Good night, folks.